Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, as Tim said, I'm going to be speaking a bit about uh, Jesus' time in the wilderness, but particularly looking at um, sort of our, our identity in that and how the wilderness can shape um, how we view ourselves. Um, and just reading through this, actually, I, w- I preached in the morning as well, and um, in classic <laughs> St. D's fashion, on Friday evening, Pat was like, oh, by the way, um, it's actually a, a christening service for two families, one of whom never find themselves in church. I was like, great, so I'm going to be preaching like suffering <laughs> wilderness. So actually, I sort of went back and, um, and added in a bit about the baptism of Jesus, which is just before he goes into the wilderness, and actually learned so much about that, and so I think it actually works quite nicely, so good one, Lord. Um, so yeah, just, um, there's so much we can learn about Jesus' own baptism um, that can speak to us where we're at now. Um, but I also yeah, I want to talk about what happens straight after that, almost immediately after Jesus' baptism and what we can learn about the wilderness. So firstly, um, when Jesus baptized, God seals uh, Jesus' identity. So before Jesus does anything, any miracles, uh, healings, teaching, walking on the water, turning water into wine, his heavenly father first speaks over him, words of love and affirmation and acceptance. He says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. It's the ideal foundation upon which Jesus could build his life and his ministry. Isn't it also amazing that before Jesus had made any achievements, um, before he'd done really anything, he'd done very little that had been recorded at this point, he hadn't sort of hashtag smashed it um, or anything like that. Before that, before any action, God spoke those words over him. And opinions matter, don't they? Often we see ourselves as other people see us. When I was five years old, I wore a ponytail to school for the first time, and my friend, who's, who's no longer one of my friends, uh, said, "Why wow, your, your ears really stick out. And I was like, okay. Uh, and I never let my ears out from under my hair for the whole of my school experience. It's taken years, years of therapy. To <laughs> Not really. Um, but I really let those words sink in. And um, that's a silly example, but there may be words that you've had spoken to you over your life which have shaped the way you think about yourself. Hurtful things, untrue things, things that make you question who you are. Maybe call those to mind and dwell instead on what God says over you. Because what Jesus did on the cross, dying on the cross, paying for our sin, being resurrected, beating death, means that we have inherited all of Jesus' rightness and we're loved in the same way that God loves, loves him. So if this is the case, then what God spoke over Jesus 2,000 years ago still stands for us. And what does he say? He says, you are my child, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. That is what he says over you. That is your identity. And why is this important? Because our identity influences our decisions. It determines what risks we take. It affects our relationships. Just like I believe that my ears were awful and I, so I kept them covered. Um, if we believe that we aren't worth much, then we will act accordingly. But this is the incredible thing. God has sealed our identity. He has spoken love and acceptance over us. And if we accept this loving, embracing, forgiving God, this becomes our jumping off point, the place from where our decisions are made, from where our lives grow. Jesus heard this affirmation from his father before he began his work. Do we need to hear the same? Are we willing to challenge our own perceptions of ourselves and allow for God's opinion of us to ultimately count? Can we accept that even before we get out of bed in the morning, before we've had a chance to achieve anything, God is speaking this over us? So Jesus has just been baptized, 
Um, the heavens have literally opened, and God has spoken these beautiful things over Jesus. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit, just as God speaks them over us today. But what happens next is just as important. Jesus is led straight into the wilderness to be tempted and challenged and bullied by the devil. Often we can see this passage as sort of nothing to do with us. When are we ever going to go into the wilderness? And what's the desert? And the devil is like, what does he look like? And I'd like us today to, to view this wilderness as life's challenges, as the times in our lives that cause us to wonder who we are and who God is and to question where God is. It might be a time of depression or poor mental health. It might be bereavement and grief, unemployment, financial fears, the breakdown of a relationship or a combination of, of all of those things. The first thing we can learn from this passage is that Jesus has been through this time too. You're not alone in finding life can be difficult. Just imagine it. Jesus has just been baptized, like absolute peak, a total outpouring of love, what incredible scenes in the River Jordan, just, you know, can you imagine being there, just seeing this dove descend from heaven and land on Jesus? The response must have just been extraordinary. What elation on the cusp of his ministry. Just sort of like, you can imagine, like, all right, Dad, yeah, come on then, let's go. It's such lavishness from the Father. But immediately after that, the same spirit that descended upon him in that moment of total joy and acceptance led him into the desert where he's face to face with the devil. Horrendous, isolating, a challenge to the very identity that God had just asserted over him. Have you ever had that? Things are going great and then just smack. Where the heck am I? How did I get here? Where is God? I found that kind of element of this, of this account of Jesus' life such a comfort during my own time of wilderness this year. In fact, actually, exactly, exactly this Sunday last year was uh, my husband Joe and I's first time at Sadiq's. Um, we'd been married in the April, and um, it had taken us a few months to get to church because what was meant to be a blissful time on our honeymoon um, kind of uh, wasn't. Um, what was meant to be the happiest times of our life uh, didn't happen, really. Um, I was hit with crippling anxiety and panic attacks and obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD. Uh, these things have been prowling around my mind for a lot of my life, um, particularly since moving to London in 2010, uh, where the OCD got quite acute. But for whatever reason, um, the proverbial poop hit the fan uh, while we were in romantic Rome, not so romantic, and I began to unravel. Um, the OCD was out of control. The levels of anxiety I was feeling made me think I was going crazy and losing my mind. Uh, we looked at getting an earlier flight, which is never, never good on a honeymoon. Can we come home early, please? Um, but we couldn't. But we did return to England exhausted and disappointed and sad and for me, terrified about what the future was going to look like. And actually, what followed were the worst weeks of my life. Uh, the OCD made me feel like the world was imminently going to end and it would be all my fault. Um, something horrific was going to happen. It was so all-consuming that I stopped being able to leave the house, hence why we only got to church in August, because uh, I hadn't really been out. Um, I'd wake up and I'd have a few seconds of peace before the anxiety just hit me like a train. I couldn't see God. I couldn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. People were praying that over me and I was like, I just don't see it, to be honest. My days consisted really of just cowering on the sofa waiting for Joe to come home for work, sometimes calling him in the middle of the day saying, can you come home now because I'm frightened. Everything I knew about myself was swept away. Everything I found my identity in, my career in Westminster, my independence, my love of hospitality and hosting people, being the one that people come to with their problems and like listening, sorting out, all gone. I was the one with the problem. I was the one in the wilderness. 
It was wilderness as I'd never known it before. And I'll come back to this in a moment. What we can learn from Jesus' time in the wilderness is firstly this, that wilderness is not punishment. It's so easy to find ourselves in hard times and say, God, what did I do wrong? We see it all over the Psalms. David, one of the greatest heroes of the Bible, described as a man after God's own heart, having been betrayed by his best friend, chased into the desert where he's hiding in caves and fearing for his life. He peppers the Psalms with questions. Where are you, God? What did I do wrong? Was I not faithful? Did I not pray enough? He says in Psalm 69, I sink in the miry depths, there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. I was saying the same things in my time of wilderness. Why me? I started seeing a counselor, but I hated the fact that I needed to. I was on medication to stem the waves of anxiety, another blow to my identity. I was utterly desperate, wondering where had my God gone. But the wilderness is not the absence of God. It is not punishment. It is not that you've accidentally taken a wrong path and God is sitting back just going, well, let's see how you deal with this one then. Wilderness is a biblical principle. Jesus went there. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we can expect the wilderness, but we don't need to fear it. If we are called to be like Jesus and live a life that reflects his own, then we should expect to spend some time in the wilderness. But it's also clear from this passage that beauty is in the wilderness too. The wilderness refines us, but it does not define us. We may never know the reason why things happen, but we can trust that God is good and kind. There is such significance in the fact that Jesus went through this time of testing before he began his three years of ministry. It says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus knew what it was to suffer. Don't you think that would have affected the way he met with people? The profound privilege of knowing God in the midst of the wilderness would have shaped Jesus' ministry. To experience firsthand an element of the brokenness that's all around helps in ministering to others. For Joe and I, this time of wilderness taught us what it meant to be vulnerable with each other, with our families and friends. It taught us huge amounts about mental health, enabling us to speak honestly with other people who were experiencing similar things. During those pretty hellish few months, I couldn't see a reason for our suffering. I felt really hard done by, really lost, bitterly disappointed. People will ask me, oh, how's wedded bliss? <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> but I can say now with absolute conviction, I'm so grateful to have gone through it. God taught me lessons I could not have learned any other way. Through it all, God was faithful. And by extension, many friends would say to me in my distress, you know, it's a blip. You've just taken a detour, but you'll get back on track. And on the surface, wonderfully encouraging. Oh, yeah, that's, that's good, blip. I can, I can live with a blip. But underneath this, I began to realize these words were not full of the living hope of God. Despite all good intentions, what they made me realize was that I had indeed seen this as a blip on the path. But the path to what? If I was really honest with myself, it was the unconscious path to a safe and secure home and a marriage and children, happiness, safety. But that is not the path we're called to walk. We are called to bring glory to God, to be salt and light and speak the truth of Jesus to those who are lost. 
Yes, I was disappointed because I didn't have the glorious newlywed glow. The only glow I had was the sweat from panic attacks. But I learned that God's work is not disappointing. If just one person saw the face of Jesus through our suffering and vulnerability, as messy and completely unglamorous as it was, all glory to him. Wilderness is not a mistake. Wilderness is not God out of control. And we can learn also about the way Jesus responds to his own desert days. So the devil is challenging everything Jesus knows about himself. He's pushing Jesus to forget who God says he is. He's trying to sow doubt in Jesus' mind. Are you sure you're the son of God? Go and prove it. And how does Jesus respond? There's so much for us to learn here. He responds with verses from the Bible. He leans on the truth that is contained in this book to remind him of his identity and remind him of the truth. Do we do that when things get difficult and God seems distant? Do we return to his word or do we panic? A wise person actually on focus said, when you can't see God, read him. It took me such a long time to see the significance of this response, of Jesus' response in the wilderness, when Joe and I were deep in the wilderness. But I began to realize that even in the bleakest moments, where I felt I was going to burst with just fear and terror and panic, something in me kept returning to God's word. By no means was it every time. There were plenty of moments where I forgot, where I just gave in to panic, where I shouted and screamed and swore. It was, it was unpleasant. But in time, I began to see that this was my only way out of the wilderness. There was nothing else that was going to give me hope or help me through. I learned psalms off by heart so that I could call them to mind in the bleak moments. I would put on worship music and sing through gritted teeth, I am no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. I didn't even really believe it. We have the example of Jesus' response in the wilderness, and all we need to do is follow it. When he was face to face with the devil, his response was steeped in the truth of God's word, extinguishing the lies, reaffirming his identity as a son of God. In Ephesians, Paul describes the word of God as a sword, the ultimate weapon for the wilderness. And Jesus was wielding it with utter conviction. What a blow to the enemy to not fear circumstances, but to stand with confidence, meeting every challenge with the word of God. I also want to encourage you that you can leverage your experience of the wilderness to grow in intimacy with the Lord. We read in the scripture that we just read that Jesus leaves the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit, and it's just under the, the next title, so it's easy to miss. The sort of wilderness ends, and then it's, oh, it, off he goes to his ministry. But he's full of the Holy Spirit. He was close to God after that wilderness time. Despite the awful things he'd seen and experienced, his relationship with God would have been transformed during that time. James 4.8 says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. It's so tempting to turn our backs when life is messy and hard, when we choose to face the wilderness with him, we grow in trust and intimacy. We see it again in the life of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he is crucified. Utter pain and confusion and grief, but utter vulnerability with his father. He uses the word Abba, which some say is a more intimate term for father, and it's the only time Jesus uses this. So in his greatest pain, it seems he's at his closest with God. Intimacy is to be found with God when we realize that trusting him is really the only option. If we could only glimpse the father heart of God, the 
perfect parent who wants to know how it really is. He doesn't need everything's fine. He wants your honesty. He can take it. And in response, he will strengthen you. How? Through his word and his Holy Spirit, just as he did for Jesus. God speaks over each one of us here today. You are my child, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is who we are first and foremost. Before mother, father, daughter, son, sister, brother, you're a child of God. Take your identity from God's opinion of you. Know that the one who created you knows you and loves you. And when the times of wilderness come, you need not be afraid. It's not punishment. The wilderness refines you, but it will not define you. We will not fear, say the Psalms, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. The Lord Almighty is with us. In January, uh, God healed me of my anxiety and my OCD out of nowhere, really. Um, there have been amazing blessings of medication and prayer and counseling, um, but he did take it away, and that is down to his goodness and down to his mercy and his kindness. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves, even in the wilderness, that God is kind. So I wonder if we might want to respond. Uh, when I was praying for uh, you guys, uh, when I was preparing this talk, I felt there might be sort of three groups of people uh, that God wants to speak to. And I also just want to share a picture that God gave me when we were praying before the service. So firstly, those who want to know their identity in God, you might not have met God before, but you want to hear the voice of Father God saying, you are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased then there may be those of you who are actually in the midst of your wilderness. You can't see a way out, and you need strength, and you need to be reminded that God is kind. And you also need to know that you are not your suffering. And thirdly, those who might be emerging from a time of wilderness, or even have been thinking back this morning, uh, sorry, this evening, to a challenging time, and need wisdom in how God would like you to use what you have learned in that time. Because, friends, there is such power when we share our stories. Psalm 107 says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. 